This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. So I know there's a lot of buzz and interest around agroforestry and food forests these days, but do you really know what the difference is between an orchard and a food forest? Or how to choose the right species for your climate and soil conditions? How about companion plants in the various strata of a forest? And if you're looking to make money and sell products, how can you make a business plan and calculate expenses and profit from a system that could take years to mature? Luckily, my friend Jacob Evans and I will be covering all of that and more in our upcoming course on profitable syntropic agroforestry. In the beautiful setting of the Spanish coastal mountains, Jacob and I will take you through the practical learning experience of designing and planning all the way to putting plants in the ground for a profitable syntropic agroforestry enterprise. Early registration discounts are now open for this five-day course from April 13th through the 18th, and because of COVID precautions, spots are limited, so be sure to register right away. Just follow the link on the website or our link tree on Instagram for all of the details. Now, if, on the other hand, you already know what you want to plant and have a design ready to go, I can help you out there too. If your project is located anywhere in continental Europe, you can get the trees you're thinking of planting and a group of volunteers to help you out to get them in the ground absolutely free. I've connected with the team at Life Terra to help them reach their goal of growing 500 million trees all over Europe in the next couple of years. It's an ambitious goal and we need your help. Whether you're aiming for reforestation, planning an orchard business, adding perennial alleyways or hedges to your farm, or simply inspired to plant a food forest in your backyard, we can help make your project happen with free trees and planting support. So if you sign up through the link on the website, I'll also offer a free project consultation to make sure that you get started with a good plan and understand how the process works. Just fill out the information through the link and let's get planting. Hello and welcome back everybody. So as we continue through this series on regenerative design, we've taken a look at small and residential scale project with Rob Avis of Verge Permaculture. Then last week we explored the homestead scale with Drew Grimm from the Schoolhouse Life. And this week we're getting into the larger scale of properties and how regenerative design can be applied to farms. Now for this subject, my go-to source for practical and professional farm design is always Darren Doherty. Now, Darren describes himself as a fifth-generation Bendigo region land manager, developer, author, and trainer who has been involved in the design and development of well over 3,000 mostly broad-acre projects across six continents in more than 50 countries, ranging from 1 million hectare cattle stations in Australia's Kimberley region to 110,000-acre estancias in Patagonia, Ecovillage developments in Tasmania and public-private R&D agroforestry and education projects in Vietnam, novel ag machinery development plus family farms across the globe with a range of private corporate government and non-profit clients. So a lot of range of experience there. Darren is also the originator of the Regrarian's platform process, which outlines a strategic and logical process to the development of regenerative agricultural systems and is the program extensively outlined in the Regrarian's Handbook, which is now being released chapter by chapter as an ebook. Along with the Regrarian's Workplace, which is also the online content management and professional liaison platform for a client, associate training, and alumni relations. Now, though I have interviewed Darren a couple of times before on this show, this session in particular was really very timely for me as I'm currently working through the online Rex program for the design of my own property while also guiding our Climate Farmers Pioneer group through the same process. 
With a more intimate understanding of Darren's design system, I was looking to gain insight into the lineage of his learning and experience, as well as the mind behind the process. Darren has a unique way of teaching in that many of his answers to questions come in the form of stories and explain not only the answer you were looking for, but the history and the context around it so that you can develop your own answers in the future. This interview, in particular, takes a much more philosophical bend than I had anticipated going into it, and as a result, I learned a lot more than I had expected since I am now quite familiar with the teaching material. So, Get comfortable for this one and just let the stories unfold. Here's Darren Doherty. Well, look, why don't we just jump right into it then? Um, yeah, I'm really curious no worries. To, to get some insights on how your design process has shifted over time. Because you've talked about mm -hmm. in the webinars that I've seen of yours, how you, know, you started kind of in farming communities, helping out there, and then got into permaculture. And this has really de developed into a much more professional training than what most people associate with a PDC. Where have you started to fill in different points where you've seen it lacking? And I know a big thing that you do is, is you sample from a lot of other disciplines and studies in order to make the most complete training and, I guess, access to tools that you can. Yeah. How has that, that evolved over time? Yeah, well, I think, well, the first part of that is, um, I suppose there's always that, well, I look at it as that period before Bill Mollison called me one day, which I think was about 99 or something like that, 1999, and, and said something like, it's about time you, uh, I often use his voice, I go, it's about time you started to teach. And um I'd met Bill probably five, four or five years before. <clears throat> and we we got along pretty well. Um, and um, he, uh, yeah, we smoked cigarettes together and um, hung out when he was, and he was not married at that time as well. Um, and then he, around 99, I think he got married for the last time to Lisa Mollison. And they, and then he moved down to Tasmania. So he sold his farm or, or moved from his farm up north in northern New South Wales, went down there and approached me to do that. And my immediate reaction to that was, mm, okay, what's the money? Because <laughs> at that time, at that time I was contracting. <clears throat> That's That was my whole world was um, designing, managing clients, developing properties that was all I really considered. And I think that, um, well, Bill, Bill obviously saw that I could put two words together, which is the first, I suppose the first, um, cab off the rank, as far as teaching is concerned, um, you've got to be able to communicate. And in my discussions with him around what I was doing with clients, um, you know, I said this to someone recently when they asked me, Oh, you had, what sort of training courses do you do to become a teacher? I said, well, I'll use my own experience here. Part of that is actually navigating a, a, a conversation with people. Um, and for me, at least, that was uh, uh, doing that with, you know, hun literally hundreds of clients was, um, was really a good foundation for that because you have to take those people on a journey. I mean, a lot of teaching is storytelling and, 
having people, I suppose, believe what you're telling them. Um, there's a bit of salesmanship, I suppose. Um, so that consulting space really helped with that. The other part to that is, um, which is what a precursor to that with Bill was that he asked me to write a book for him as he was a publisher at that time still to Tagari Public Publications, I think. Um, but yeah, Tagari. And um, and that was around my process because every time he caught up with me, he was really stoked about my process. He loved the fact that I was handling all these jobs and getting all this work done. And there's a really cool interview that he did um, for a US magazine. I can't remember the author, uh, the interviewer now, but he was sort of bragging that one of his people, because that's how people do it, you know, um, and he was exaggerating wildly. It was pretty, it was almost embarrassing. You know, this guy's planting this and he's doing this and he's doing that. And it was sort of like all over it. But um, so Bill was sort of familiar with all of that and asked me to write a book about process because we had discussed that. I said, you know, that permaculture, at, from my perspective, almost, and he didn't like me saying this to me, it became like a franchise. And, um, and yeah, he, we had a sort of a started off a bit heated about that when I said that, but he sort of got it. And I said, well, you know, and then there's the, I said, and that's actually probably possible if you taught people a solid process, um, then that process allied with the principles of permaculture could probably roll on through, um, if someone had adequate training, worked under someone who knew what they were doing and stuff, um, then that's probable because the whole permaculture package, as it were, well, or franchise, as I put it, was that you did this 10, 12, 14-day permaculture design course, got that package of information, and it was originally called the Permaculture Design Consultants Course, and that was... With, the, with that idea that you got that package and then you could go off and, and pretty well work anywhere and you're pretty well, you know, and, and I think that still happens today with some of these folks. They give people that sort of licence to go and do that, which, as I said to Bill, I mean, I don't feel really comfortable with that because um, I think, you know, landscapes and people and businesses and capital are all pretty complex. You shouldn't really do that. So, you know, in terms of the processes, I I was pretty clear on what it took to develop a a um, a, a, pro a property, um, and um, I don't know. And, and if I step forward to when I did the first online Rex in twenty seventeen, I actually went back to the the what we called our works pattern that I developed in, I think, 97 or 98, which was our works process. And I taught that for the first two Rexes and then went sort of back to the future in a way in that I used the Regrarians platform as the basis for the rest, for the remaining Rexes. So, yeah, that, so the, so the process of, uh, running a job as a consultant project manager um, is actually 
and that's what I suppose I I re-found out when I did the um, when I did the first two online rexes. I found that actually that's limited because it's it's because only because you actually need to have a foundation to to work from in order to be that consultant and to be that project manager. And I didn't deliver that in those first two Rexes because, you know, and that's, that's I think, where the genius of something like permaculture is really good and holistic management, for that matter, is that you've at least got, more so with holistic management, you've got a really solid framework. Permaculture, you've got a list of principles and, and uh, three ethics. So that is a Hang foundation on, is can, important uh, to, leap, to leap from. Yeah. Let me see if I can break that down a little bit uh, in case I didn't understand it correctly. So the, the process part is often what is talked about that is lacking in permaculture design courses. People end up with mm-hmm. a bunch of concepts, pattern understanding, and no real, I guess, framework like you mentioned in order to put mm-hmm. it into practice and make decisions. No. And no. that is something that the, the Rex platform has always been known for kind of excelling at. And I would imagine mm-hmm. that's largely because of your previous experience in contracting mm-hmm. and executing mm-hmm. on projects. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then the other framework uh, with holistic management that you mentioned and use a lot in your teaching as well. The idea there is that it, it helps you to make decisions, maybe not necessarily giving you a playbook of how to implement them. Uh, Although when you get into the stuff about actual animal management, it does get a lot more specific and and I'm actually taking it on financial. And it is very, yeah. And it is a very animal livestock centric package. Yeah. Yeah. Although again, the principles in that are widely applicable. Just most of the teaching material, much like permaculture with gardening is done through grazing animals. And I haven't seen it adapted too much for other contexts, even though I've heard of a lot of stories where it's been applied to other things. And then, so in your case, you're saying that there needs to be a foundation of knowledge and pattern understanding before you can start to work with a process Mm -hmm. or the process comes first and you add information on top of it afterwards. Well, I think the piece that I failed to mention there is the key line part and that's the and you know the big the big you might say download from key line and all of this is the scale of relative permanence yeah and and as I've gone along um because look if I go back to permaculture one for example um permaculture one sort of well it did list and adjust to create its own scale of permanence, it more or less stuck to what Yeomans did. No one's really deviated much from what Yeomans put forward in 1958 in the challenge of landscape. Um, you know, they've, they've mucked around with some of the words as we have, um, but largely it's 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 not. There's not much to be done there, right? I've never seen anybody um, change the order. I've seen people add in no. things and expand on it, but the original order seems to be very solid. Pretty well, yeah. Pretty well, especially especially the top end of the order when you're looking at climate, land shape, or geography, as we put it, yeah. and water, uh, roads. When you get when you look at those at that at that foundational layers or constitutional layers, as I call them, or factors as Yeomans called them, um, of climate and land shape, and then you get to the infrastructure layers or factors as Yeomans called them, water, roads 
trees, that sort of thing. There's not a lot of variation there. So, yeah, you're right. Anyway, there was that in Permaculture 1, and I think they, like so many of us, and I'll include myself in that frame, um, missed the opportunity right there to actually have, um, an, well, what I would now call an aid memoir, a checklist. Um, and that, you know, that that's the big turning point for me because I was really struggling with Bill um, when he asked me to write that book because I, I still just couldn't, like my work's pattern was, like I said, it didn't really, it, it was a, it had a, it had a logic to it in terms of what followed, you know, you did, you, like you took the call from the client, you then got a quote, you know, you did that sort of very traditional um, consultant consulting project management process, which, you know, when I read, when I read some of Da Vinci's work or even going back to Cato's work, you know, it's nothing brand new there. You know, it's like, it's just that you didn't take a call. You, you exchanged letters and pleasure. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Or when I read, when I read what Capability Brown was doing in the 1700s, you know, it was more or less the same. But the big thing that they, that they and me and permaculture didn't have at that, at that stage, I would say, and I would say this with holistic management, um, I probably need to explore that a bit more, but I would say that none of those methodologies had um, yeah, they've got a, there's a process of going through the, the development and the thinking of the development, but none of them really had anything to hang off. Um, and that's, I think, well, for me, at least that was where the key line scale of relative permanence gave me that because it actually gave me, and I remember saying this to Bill back then, I said, you know, we, permaculture lacks an A to Z or an A to Z. Um, in terms of that, the the principles are guiding, but they're they're not the scale of relative permanence. They're not factors to consider, right? There's nothing in the permaculture principles that says that says, oh, you got to do water, you got to do roads, you've got to do or trails, you've got to access trees, fences, all of those components. And there's nothing in holistic management that guides you like that either. Um, it's got, like I say, a, um, it helps you with arraying your um, your motivations, your aims and your motivations in life. Um, it helps you to, um, to do really good planning. Um, but, but it doesn't actually tell you where to put things, <laughs> really. It does a little bit. It's land planning is but it's land planning is largely where do you put water points and where do you put fences? That's about, that's about the extent of, there's nothing about trees. There's nothing about roads. There's nothing about all of, there's nothing to show you what size pipes you need to do or any of that stuff, right? That's sort of just left to the ether to work out. Right. Or, or, you know, Oh, you go, Oh shit, actually. Yeah. You might need to think about where your water supply comes from. And yeah, you might need to work out how big the pipe is. And yeah, you might want to need to, oh, actually I probably, trees might be important for shelter and stuff. I got to say so, that's one of the things that I'm struggling with most in the holistic management stuff. Like you said, there are some real strengths in there and the hmm. scope of considerations that they ask you to take into. And I really like the way that you've integrated 
the context checks with the climate right at the beginning. It makes a lot mm. of sense there. However, mm. much like, you know, the man with the hammer sees a world full of nails, the solution for everything is animal impact. <laughs> I never see anything where you should, you know, try and plant something or try and direct water. Um, it's all just put animals on it under a bunch of different, you know, context checks and circumstances and, and analysis, but it's almost the only tool that is advocated for. And there are limitations to that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's the thing. And I was thinking about this the other day, um, I was talking to someone and thinking, you know, the pathways, you know, the classic permaculturalist is, and I, 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 I remember talking to the late Toby Hemingway about this. He was a great fellow, that the classic permaculturalist is actually usually a horticulturalist. Hmm. They're usually a plant person and they're usually a woody plant person, right? So, um, yeah, the woody plant horticulturalists um, who are trying to do that. And I mean, I'm, I'm obviously generalising, but that's what I see. And I don't think that's changed too much. There's a really strong horticulture and plant culture bent. Um, holistic management, obviously, there's a really big animal culture and when you talk with some of the folks who are really strong in that movement, I mean, they don't have much to much good to say about woody plants at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you they know, it's way. sort of almost it's well, like not so much get in the way, but they see them as being in some ways uh, biologically inferior when it comes to some of the goals, the ecosystem and mm. landscape function goals that that one might otherwise have, and. I find that irksome and resist that, uh, of course. Um, not because I have a bone to pick with that so much is it just lit when you start having that kind of narrative, it really, it, this gets to the point, I think it starts to limit the exposure of all of the things that you can do um, and that make up um, the systems that, that, uh, that we that we, that we probably want to have. Um, I mean, I've been to hardcore, I mean, hardcore HM properties where it's just grass. And I have to say, yeah, it's good and it's really nice to see a diverse grassland, but I find them, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit one-dimensional, to be honest. Um, and that's just, that's me and my context. They're per those people are stoked with how it's going. And when you do the metrics on it, there's biodiversity and there's, you know, the place is going well. It accepts rainfall. Um, they've got money in their bank. They're happy. You know, when you, so when you look, when you look at the e ecological outcomes, they're all pretty good. And you look at the social outcomes, they're happy and so on and blah, blah. And you look at the um, financial outcomes. Yeah. So you've ticked your sort of holistic box, but I don't know, to me, and this is my context that doesn't really tick my box, but that's the, that's the issue, I suppose. Um, ultimately, when you are working with people, um, they're not you. Um, and so um, you've got to provide people with the opportunity to, and this is something I feel very strongly about and have only become more resolved about this is, is about self-determination is that, um, I think it's super important that people do that, but then they, 
that they do that recognizing that they also live in a community so that you you know you can't be you can't be so selfish as to not include um, your family or you know as your first community and then the, the broader community's requirements as well yeah but the, um, yeah, the process sort of downstream both metaphorically and physically yeah 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 but the um but yeah uh, definitely a turning point was the um well the, in the first place um taking on and then I would say doing a mild adaptation of the scale of relative permanence and keeping it as a scale of permanence. But then that was really about 2010. And then probably about, I'm going to say, probably about 2015, 16, especially when I did the, we did in 2016, we did a, a world tour where we did, I think, 13, 10-day courses each it was a day to the subject so that gave me a really good opportunity to test um with you know up to 80 indiv other individuals um, in a course framework and courses are amazing like that I mean, especially you can't beat a one you can't beat analog face-to-face -face courses because there's the after hours and the, the camaraderie and the you know the human contact and that opportunity to have little riffs with people and jams with people on ideas and feedback and stuff. So got a lot out of that. And it was really after that and then a bit of thinking that I felt, well, actually scale of permanence in itself is a limitation. It's again, it's a, it's um, restricting people's ability to express context, their own context or their community that, um, and so that sort of led me to thinking, well, the, the uh at the regrarians platform in its expression of the key line scale of permanence ha actually has become not a permanence check not a permanence scale as much as a checklist or an aid memoir and um and an aid memoir differently to how so most people in this space who who are exposed to an aid memoir is um well it, it's an aid of memory as you'd expect in french um, but most people in this space recognise it through Alan Savory's use of it in um, in in the 17, 17 or eighteen steps that are involved in developing a holistic grazing plan. So, um, but that application is just one of many. If you look at the military applications of aid memoir, it is um, it can be just a checklist. Um, almost like a, a sort of a mini encyclopedia just to help people remember things. But it also can be, as Alan has devised, that where you're actually asking a series of, of questions. Or, and, you know, Alan's a pilot too, you know, and pilots when they, when they, um, when they you know, they get to their plane and they have a checklist before you, um, before you, uh, before you say, you know, turn the prop, you know, it's, uh, it's there's yeah so i get i get that and that's that's where we are now i think um i'll, I'll be interested to see where that evolves you know uh as we go along as we um but i i think at this stage i feel fairly settled with that but i said that about other things in the past too <laughs> <laughs> now that you said it you're gonna have to eat your words at some point <laughs> yeah well of course of course but that's okay that's how at, at least 
Well, it is, and you've got to be prepared for that. Um, yeah. Well, look, so I'm curious now, did you do much traveling before you got more involved with permaculture? Or did that come later? And the, the Definitely teaching? not. No? Definitely not. No, no. So, I, um, what so were some of the I, big things that you, you started to learn and understand in leaving the Australian landscape, which is often talked as one of the most unique in the world being the oldest continent and some of the simplest landforms that you just don't see in other places. Yeah. Um, well, the, uh, the, what did I do? So up to when I was 18, I went out of my state twice. Um, so Victoria, and Victoria is a very, Victoria is a, about 15,000 square kilometres bigger than Great Britain. Um, um, so it's not small. Um, and it's very geologically diverse. And in my contracting period, which was, say, about the first seven years of between 93 and 2001, I'd put it, um, 2002, I worked pretty well solely in, in Victoria. Um and with a couple of spurts out into New, southern New South Wales and South Australia, but mostly in a similar part of the world. Um, by the time I was 18, I'd only gone to Central Australia on a school trip. So we went to Uluru and on a bus trip and then flew home. And I went over the river, Murray River, to New South Wales a couple of times, and that was it. So not very far. So, um, but... Um, Meeting Bill Mollison um, certainly opened me up to, because he, I suppose, was kind of similar growing up in, I mean, I wouldn't compare myself, but um, but he grew up yeah, a, a pretty, well, even though he lost his father when he was 15, I lost mine when I was a baby. Um, we both enjoyed the bush and we both had a very didactic um, um, pretty free existence. He's by the ocean, mine in central Victoria on our farm, and just like you know, I had a great childhood, lots of sport, um, and all the rest of it. So I didn't have much exposure to anything outside of that. But then, um, thanks to I suppose talking to him and being kindred um, in that way, um, and then he obviously got out himself, but I don't think it was really until he was in his 50s. He was probably about the same age as I am now, about 53, 54, when he left Australia and started. So what year was that? But 83. So he was born in 1928. So, yeah, pretty close to my age now um, before he got out of Australia and started to go to all these places on, the, on this new permaculture bandwagon that he self-created so so that wonder that he sort of showed and so on um really fascinated me and he introduced me to Howard Yana Shapiro uh well Howard came down to Tasmania and I was there teaching with Bill at the time and um and he said oh, I've got this project up in Vietnam and Bill said you'd probably be good for it because of your project management experience and so that was my first uh, foray out of out of this country was to go to Vietnam, which was curious in a way because um, that was where my my father was killed when I was a baby in the war. So, 
and um, and I just happened to land on the anniversary, the 37th anniversary of his death. So that was sort of like all a bit freaky, but anyway, <laughs> out of my control. And um, but that was that was big, and that was a big landing because that was that was very foreign. I mean, you, you know, completely different culture. As I discovered, you know, they like to drink and they like to joke and like everyone does all around the planet, apart from a few populations, you know, people are people everywhere and most most people have the same motivations in life and want to raise their families well and, you know, all that. So got that. But um, that was a big thing and that opened up my eyes. And what it also gave me a flavour is, well, A, I was getting paid really well and B, I was starting to work pretty closely again with Alan Yeomans and looking at this whole global warming thing and the whole uh, possibility of carbon farming. Uh, this was in about 2005-06 and saved up a fair bit of money and that enabled me to do what I, what we did in 07, which was what I called our interview with the planet and so we did a 13-month tour called the Soil, Water and Carbon for Every Farm Tour. So we did all of these, I'm going to say quasi-keyline courses. Um, and they were pretty well foundational to what we continued to do right up to the wrecks as you know it today. So that, and it was, I mean, we, 13 months, we went twice, I think we went twice, uh, twice, <laughs> this way and we went a couple of times that way you know you know up in uh, south america and yeah everywhere so that was a and you know when you do courses at the on farms as um as a way of traveling and learning um you certainly get a lot closer to those landscapes than you would as a tourist of course um so yeah that was really powerful and you know we met a lot of amazing people and some of whom are still really great friends and very close friends. And we've gone back to their places. Our kids have grown up together and all that. So that's been extremely powerful and what has is- helped a lot. I mean, I know talking with you, you've kind of done some of that stuff yourself and it's, you can't, you can't beat that, um, that experience. No, no, you definitely have to live it. Um, I'm wondering of the things that you encountered that you had never seen before from Australia and having not traveled so much when you were younger, did you end up rethinking a lot of what you had learned and kind of reformulating some of your processes and and design? Or did it serve more as a confirmation that the patterns are applicable everywhere and despite minor differences, the framework is really solid? I would say, I would say the latter. And I think that's why part of the the reason for human success as a species is that, you know, you've got to be on a landscape that works to allow you to be successful. So, um, and there is enough similarity, you know, rain falls everywhere, gravity works everywhere, you know, it's um, plants grow everywhere, animals grow everywhere, you know, there's ecosystems everywhere. So um, yeah, the, the shapes and sizes and the ways and the species are all different, of course and how hot and how cold and when and how much and all that is obviously where the variations occur. But um, there's, yeah. And I was going to say before um, that the other, I suppose the the thing that I reflect on now is that um, when you go out there as a, and you, you know, you put these courses together and out there, you're the guy, 
or you're the gal, whatever, whatever it is, you're the person. And so there's a certain um, pressure of expectation, I suppose, which I didn't really pay attention to at the time. Um, and, you know, where I'd put my head on now and go and do it again, um, I would definitely, I mean, I was participatory because that's what I learned a lot about when I was working in Vietnam, those whole, the participatory training methods and all the rest of it. But, um, but I'll probably be even more so. And at that time too, I hadn't taken on the whole hate holistic management stuff as well. So that, that wasn't really until 2008. So I sort of missed that boat on the first tour. Uh, and that would have, that would have um, strengthened that a whole lot more because it does give the, it does give that, that foundation of, um, of motivation that um, is lacking in most, if not all, of the other land management methodologies out there, permaculture included, and key line definitely included. Sure. And that, I mean, and I would say at that point, 2007, my main influence was a, uh, were whole farm planning, um, key line, permaculture, and whatever agroforestry is. You know what I mean? Because agroforestry is, it's not really a methodology, I wouldn't call it. It's more of a set of practices. Like there's yeah. no way to do, there's no way, if you like, to do agroforestry. It's, it's um, the whole spectrum, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So but they, they were my, I would say, my key influences. What I was missing was um, the HM side, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, in talking about these things that are recurring patterns and the fundamentals not really changing, what are some of the most persistent problems and regular issues that you see farmers having around the world? Mm. Well, having to exist, um, which I think for anybody (laughs) is hard um, because... We don't live in a world that's easy easy to exist in. Um, I don't know that that's ever been any different. Um, I mean, some of us will find ourselves musing over what it would have been like to have been a hunter-gatherer, and I'm sure um, some of them who sat around a fire too long um, might have <laughs> contemplated how easier it was 100,000 years earlier when they had when they had no brain um, that really thought much, you know, so, (laughs) or how easy it was to be my dog. Um, Isn't life easier for them? But um, it's, it's not an easy world to live in. Um, It's a heavily regulated world. Um, It's also regulated by um, the connectivity that we have in terms of um, keeping up appearances as people do on social media. So that that's an added layer that I've seen come in over my life, um, particularly over the last, what, 12 or 15 years or so. Um, and then it's not easy to make money. Um, there's an expectation. I mean, there's still the expectation to um, have a relatively high level of income, Um um, that's taken home. Um, so, and by and large, we live in landscapes which are not, don't have the natural cap, natural capital that they did um, when our grandparents had them. 
or our great grandparents had them. So, so there's there's an array of factors which make it quite challenging. Um, and then there's also the terms of trade, the the differential between the farm gate price um, for goods produced on on landscapes and uh, what consumers are prepared to pay or what middlemen are prepared to uh, set the prices at, right? So um, um, so that that's challenging. And part of my role, I suppose, is to... And, and I, I, I didn't get this from my, my permaculture days. I mean, permaculture is almost about selling a fantasy. Um, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. I really love the concept, but it's about selling a dream. Um, and I get that. Um, but, um, yeah, the dream's got to have some reality based on it. I mean, dreams aren't reality. That's just the, the thing. So um, so we, we just, I mean, I, I try and have it so that, and I think we framed this, framed this fairly well with the way we teach our courses to just bring people back to back down to the tin tax. And we kind of, I, I mean, I... I'll try to sometimes intentionally, sometimes otherwise, um, try to do that. You know, like when I start the water discussion, I start at the raindrop because that's that's where it starts. Um, and if you start with a human, you start with one human, you, right? And what's going on inside of you, that's, you, that's a raindrop, right? So I try and look at it from that perspective just so that people can be a bit more grounded as a starting point and realize how they are part of something much bigger. They are part of a whole um, and that they have power in that. And that once, once you, I suppose, reconfigure your thinking a bit more that way, well, then you are probably going to be a bit more responsible about the way you proceed. Um, you're probably going to realize a bit more that you have time that you, that, um, I mean, people who are infatuated with ideas don't have any time because they can't get there quick enough. And I get that. Um, we've all done that. Um, whether it's being in love or buying a new farm or buying a new car or buying, you know, getting something new, you can't wait to get it. And, um, and then you get it. And it's really, it can be really cool. It can also be a complete anticlimax. So, helping people understand some of those phenomena that, that are part of the general human experience um, helps them to self-regulate a bit more um, or at least understand themselves so that they can self-regulate. I really like that principle of David Holmgren's, you know, accept feedback and apply self-regulation. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good one of his to sort of um, just you know, take a chill pill. Right. Um, and that flows through into the uh, holistic management framework where you're looking at you know, getting that feedback, uh, replanning, controlling, and then off you go again, you know. So trying to trying to keep that, keep a lid on things, keep people on track, um, because it is for a lot of people a really, really curious moment because when people are in a transition, like lots of people have written about why people have, um, uh, how to, tra you know, why they've transitioned into regenerative agriculture or whatever practice, practice change. 
but I don't think they've, they've dealt particularly well with what happens next. <laughs> um, and that's my job. <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm not doing the evangelizing, which is getting them here. Someone else or something else has got that done. I get them when that, when they've already turned that corner and they're looking ahead on a new, on a, to a new world. My job is to sort of moderate that somehow um, and make sure or give give them the best chance that they can of actually um, achieving their goals there. Um, That's that really interesting sense. that you put it that way because I've, I've often struggled to kind of put my finger on the niche that you occupy in this world of everybody promoting their pedagogies, their, their design sciences and such. And like, you don't do a lot of, advertising and can't stand. I, I can't stand i can't i can't stand i can't stand it well and yet but that's me that too a lot of people end up gravitating to your content at some point when they realize that they need to be more pragmatic and practical about the application mm -hmm. and the steps involved if they want to move past the dreaming stage and actually make it happen it seems that yeah. a lot of people end up finding your work when they come to that conclusion are you comfortable with that role there? Is that kind of how you see yourself? Oh, absolutely. No, and it's not by accident um, at all. Um, I mean, I, I joke to people about, like when, when we do, when we have a discussion in the economy layer about building narratives, um, because a lot of people who take these steps, you know, they'll start up a farm business, you know, they won't be just in the commodity game as a, as a commodity producer. Some of them are, and that's cool. If that's, that's how they play, but some of them, want to develop a uh, farm to table business as it were. Um, and so we have a discussion about what that takes, you know, you have to build, you know, cause it's not like you're the only one who's doing that these days. It's, it's a fairly common thing to do. Right. Um, and fair enough. And you look in your district and there's, and you're the, another chicken, uh, another egg producer, right? Well, where's the differentiation? How can I, why would I choose you over the other 10 pastured egg producers within 10 miles of me, right? So, so we talk about that narrative and, and I say, and, you know, I say, well, when I look at us, I mean, go into the Regrarian's website, it is the most boring website on the, on, on, on the internet, right? <laughs> and that's not by accident. Um, you know, if you look at, Nearly, if you look at anybody who does design work, or you know whether it's architectural firms, landscape architect firms, keyline, permaculture, blah blah, blah these it's almost like they've got the same deck or the same the same thing. It's like they've got this scrolling feed of luscious fields and this, that, and the other, and it's all, and that's. And I don't know if that's intentional, if that's just what people, or there's intent, obviously, but what you're doing there is you're selling a dream. You're selling, and that's someone else's dream that's on the page there. It's not yours necessarily. You might be attracted to it because you like the look of, you go, oh, wow, I love that completed picture, but it's not your picture. Yours hasn't, yours is not on that page. So I don't want to go and excite people too much about that because I don't think that's, I don't, I don't, I don't, well, someone, like I said, someone else has done that perhaps, or you've had something go bang in your life or um, that's, that's led you to change directions. But the other part of that too, is I just don't feel comfortable with evangelizing. It's just not me. I've never, I find it, I've 
I find it sickening. Um, and that's not to say, I mean, I appreciate, like, it's like my wife, Lisa, who's in the other room and will listen to this. She has no problem going into a room and selling something. All right. Me, I'd, I'd rather run out the door. I just, it just, it just really irks me to do that. Mm. But that, so, so that, that then, you know, part of that then is reflected in the way that we present ourselves. And I don't think that's something that's uh, against our favour um, because people do want, and Georgie, my close friend and colleague, is somewhat similar, probably even worse than me. Um, he's he doesn't go for that either. We're just here to do the work, right? We're here to do that part, which is kind of the boring stuff. It's almost like you get the people get excited about business, but the accountant has to count the money, <laughs> right? And that's part of it. Like we're here to show you how to do the the boring stuff and say, hey. And not be afraid, and I'm definitely not afraid to say, "Hey, I wouldn't. I'd really not. I'd really probably not do that." Whereas a lot of the people who evangelise give you no limits. Like a Bill Mollison, for example, wasn't a limits type guy, right? A Jeff Lawton in that you know in that sort of world, they they give you license to do all sorts of shit. And that I'm not. That's not. That's not a criticism. It's just the way they are. But and it excites people, and off they go. But at the end of the day, um, are, are, you, are you giving people what they need? I mean, it's like saying, well, here's, here's the lolly shop. Here's the candy store. Go for it. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. Like, you're really not someone's entry into the inspiration of permaculture or holistic management, but you're the person who tells them how it gets done and how to linearly work through a process. And like you said, that kind of the non-sexy aspect is what gets the work done. And I also think it's, it's one of the most unfortunately overlooked things when people get excited about implementing a project without thinking at all about how they're going to maintain it once it's implemented. And yeah, you, don't want to be to- you don't want to be told at that point how boring <laughs> no, it actually is going to be. I've lost, I've lost <laughs> so many clients when I start talking about, well, you're going to maintain all of this stuff that you've got in your head, right? You're going to go out there and water it, but you're not going to put in an irrigation system or you really think you're going to be able to take care of a garden that large? Yeah. 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 No, that's it. And part of that comes from the experience of, of um, getting your scales wrong and uh, getting ahead of yourself. But, um, and, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, and I, I mean, Georgie and I have often talked about jazzing our website up and, and imagining what that would do. Um, uh, going from black and white to actually putting, some photographs in there or something like that. <laughs> I'd be curious to see what that resulted in. Um, but, I would be too. Yeah, I don't know if it's necessary. <laughs> well, the other thing is, I mean, um, there's also that capacity thing and that that in itself is a, a really, that's us giving our own medicine because so often what we're dealing with with people is talking about their own capabilities and their own capacity, you know, that, as I often put it, that um, that conjunction between um, uh, your capabilities and capacities, whatever that means, and your landscape's capabilities and capacities, and what's the nexus be- of success that can occur um, between those two, that that 
human context and that landscape context. You know, how well can they come together? And we have to look at that too because um, there's a strong a strong risk um, that the quality of what we are able to do would be diminished um, and very quickly were we to overheat with you know trying to handle too many people and so on um, and I don't really know you know people have talked to me about that and said oh what if you got a million people or you know what if you know what if a Joe Rogan or a Russell Brand mentioned you right what uh, or or a big farming figure, you know what I mean? Um, what if someone gave you the nod? How would you be able to handle that? What would you do? And it's like, um, well, we probably have to turn a fair few people away um, because, yeah, we're more or less just a couple of guys working with a really cool group, a community of people doing the best we can with the frameworks that we have. Um, and trying to incrementally build up the capabilities of those people that we're working with so that if and when any next leap forward, if that ever happens or does it all just grow incrementally, um, can we um, can we start to handle things off? And I think that that's, you know, starting to happen and we're starting to see that in different ways and starting to see that we can, like it's, People like myself and to an extent Georgie and I'd put people like uh, Terry McCosker in this boot, in this boat, David Holmgren and a few others, we're classic generalists and the world's not built these days to produce generalists. Um, so, um, so, yeah, we're relatively rare as a commodity, but we still have to call, and we know, like, I know a lot about a lot of things, but I still have to call friends at times, right? Um, because you know you're not a, you're not an omnipotent organism who can can understand every fucking thing. I mean, it just doesn't work. So you've got to, and that's that's I think where we're going is that we're gathering, um, a, well, gathering, cultivating, however you want to put it, a, a community of what is now I think three and a half thousand people or so in about 85 countries who have a whole, who, who are friends, you know, like, you know, like it's like, like on those television shows, you can't answer something. I think I'll call a friend, you know, it's, it's, that's cool. You got to be okay with that because a lot of people in my position, um, particularly the evangelical people in my position as leaders um, they don't call their friends. They just pretend that they know it. And that's not healthy for anyone. Um, and that's the ego. That's the ego system getting in front of the ecosystem. And yeah, that doesn't go anywhere. So we've, I'm feeling better about that. Um, and um, yeah, we'll, so we'll see how that all rolls in, in the coming years as we, well, we, as we become more of a network of networks, um, just like we've become a prior to that, more of a, a methodology of methodologies, I suppose. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that because as an, in, as an integrator, as yeah, an yeah. integrationalist. Yeah. Yeah. Now there is a lot of, 
opportunity and power in that community that's being built around this. And there's some incredible professionals and access to information and exchange of ideas there. It's, it's been really valuable to be a part of that. And one of the things that I'm interested in, especially as I'm working more with farmers here in Europe and new technologies are coming out, especially from the startup world, different tools, different machinery and such. Have you seen any new technology that really seems like it, it serves a purpose beyond its own sale that, that can help people in the long run more than the, the maintenance costs and the upfront costs that, that they incur? Because there's, you know, I, I just see a lot of gadgets, everything from, you know, Kickstarter stuff to, to big companies coming out with things, but you always seem to kind of rely on the fundamentals, the high quality stuff that's going to last for a long time. And you seem to have this longer view of the, the maintenance, the, the duration of the materials, you know, the, the practical considerations. And so I'm wondering, out of the, the new things that have come up, is there anything really promising or do you really just rely on the fundamentals? I would say the, yeah, rely on the fundamentals. This, I mean, if I look, look, say, in the mapping and the geography world, um, yeah, yesterday I used a laser level. Um, and I was saying, and, and, and a guy I know who's like a lot of people doing a different career to what he did 30 years ago, he and I, he was at the front, he was delivering us some vegetables, right? And he used to be a mining surveyor. And he said, oh, bloody hell, this has all changed a lot. He said, oh, I remember using a, a, a dumpy level to do a 17, a 17 mile um, a differential survey to, uh, to, to, to go from a, a, um, where there was a water point to the mine. I had to work out exactly what the change in level was from the mine to this water source so that the engineers could then design the, um, the water pipe system, you know, and air, air valves and pumps or not and all the rest of it. And he said, I got, and when the engineers went back over it and did the whole thing, they, they told me I was in, I was within um, three inches. And I said, yeah, and I said, that's fantastic. And he said, and I'm there with my laser level. And um, I said, yeah, well, I started off with a dumpy level and as well, which is a telescopic level, two people, but I've got a laser and it's really good. But a laser is like, well, people on building sites use, and that's about all they get used for. But they're a really, really competent tool. And I've got, as I said to him, I've got an, an MLED RTK GPS, right, um, or GNSS. Um, it's one centimetre or sub-centimetre accurate of position of longitude, latitude, and elevation. But I don't get that out when I just need to check the levels on the drain outside like I was doing yesterday, right? It's so... There's that, well, I suppose where I'm getting to there is that over the course of the three decades I've been working in this game, um, starting off with optical levels of, you know, telescopic levels and then going right through to seeing the first RTK GPS, I think, I'm going to say 15 years ago and going, wow, isn't that so cool? You, know, you can do one person, you can be sub-centimetre. Oh, it's $20,000. Damn. And then this uh, Latvian startup comes along 
and disrupts that completely. And and I bought two units, I think, for about three thousand dollars. I think they're more now, but I, you know, I got in early, and it's like that's serious disruption. So I look at it more to your question about that. There's a there's a core of tools, I suppose, for people like me, the sort of land planning types, um, that. Uh, where there has been some disruption, but I don't see there's probably going to be a little bit more disruption to come. And that disruption will largely be not so much about um, the durability of these things because they tend to be crafted really well because that's the nature of the, they're an instrument, right? And they're precision instruments. They tend to be robust. They tend to be well-made and they tend to be durable, therefore. But what's coming down is the um, is is the accessibility of them. Drones are another case in point. But when it comes to more general farm machinery, um, I don't see that at all. Um, the uh, if you look at tractors, for example, tractors are getting bigger and more expensive. Um, generally, um, I think the big disruption that's going to come with tractors will obviously be their electrification. Um, but then that'll be interesting to see because battery power will be their big limitation. And so whether that'll be a, the proxy for that will be fuel cell technology, hydrogen will be the shift there. I think that's what we might be looking at. But then what they're dragging around, um, what they're dragging around, I mean, some of it Jethro Tull would recognise, right? There's... <laughs> it's there's not a lot new under the sun what is happening which interests me is and it has for a long time um and i've done a lot of work on because i love i grew up you know the son stepson of a of a fitter and machinist i grew up around machines and repairing machines and my grandfather was a great tinkerer um, and my stepfather was as well um is the multi-purpose machines or multi-pass machines as they're calling them now. And I started building those in the mid nineties. And I suppose if I had a three lives, one of them would be in workshops, making those things and doing R and D on them. But I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not what I, it's slow work and it's arduous and expensive and time consuming. So um, I don't get to do it, but um, I do, I do think about it a lot, but I do see that there's a bit more of that which is great um, because any improvements on resource use um, particularly on fossil fuel use is a good thing um, any less time that we're spending with machinery on landscapes is a good thing um, not only from the perspective of the of the degeneration of the equipment itself and the resource cost of that but also the uh, the um, the the, mar the the what that does to a farm's margins, so um, so I look at it from that perspective, but then there's not so much of it that's about I would say land protection or land improvement. It's about getting more production, right? So leveraging um, more energy. That yeah, basically yeah, um, just making equipment more efficient at doing jobs which you know humans have been doing a long time which is drag a stick through the earth right whether it was whether it was pulled by us or whether it was or pushed by us or whether it was pulled by a donkey or a bull or or a tractor it's 
still the same thing that's happening and that's not good for the earth um, necessarily. So what? So that's what I don't see the big leap forward in, in is, is necessarily the... the um, look, if you look at no-till, for example, no-till is fundamentally built around the concept of using herbicide um, both to suppress vegetation um, uh, before tillage or during the process of growing a crop allied with genetic modification of a crop to protect. It's, it's basically a very herbicide-centric field and the equipment that people are using in, say, organic or regenerative cropping systems has to make do with what comes from that. There's no one out there because the industry is not big enough yet. Um, the demands are not there yet that a John Deere or, or any of the big um, uh, no-till tillage you know, uh, equipment firms are, are making stuff which is, uh, which is uh, where soil health is the number uh, and in an organic system is the number one objective. What, we don't see that. Um, um, or if we do, it's it's usually a farmer who's making a one-off, um, and and then again, they're still using those sorts of products. So it's yeah, I don't really see much on that front. And of course, then when you go over into the livestock side, um, the the biggest thing there is uh, is uh, well, the electric fencing systems, which have become more and more durable and more and more easy to use, largely. Um, um, especially for ungulates, um, not so much for poultry. Um, well, not at all, because that's still net fencing land, largely. Um, and then I see, but but then beyond that is the virtual fencing concept, um, whose time is yet to come, I think. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether how that really lands, particularly in more intensive systems where there's populations of people close by. I can sort of see it on rangelands, but, um, you know, and sort of peri-urban agriculture where, agri where animals have a part to play, um, especially smaller livestock like goats and sheep and whatnot. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know how that's going to go. So, yeah, it's, I keep an eye on the tech side because I'm interested in it, but I don't really see too many big leaps forward. Um, on the mapping side, I'd love to see what I would love to see if I can put that out there because I've wanted to see this and I know that it's possible is LIDAR um, data being fundamentally available. I know the militaries of the world have all got it. I mean, it's there. I know I can buy um, data of the entire planet right now. I can buy um, uh uh, what can I buy? I can buy five centimetre per pixel digital elevation models of the entire planet right now. But it's going to cost me a shit tonne, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it really bothers me that um, we find money to spend on all sorts of things. Um, and when I look at, if I looked at what the sum total of all of that data in the world would cost, and if it was made available, perhaps at a small at, at a cost, but a, a but at a subsidised cost, so that 
the people who, who manage the majority of this, this planet's land surface can actually make better decisions because that is fundamental to that. Um, it might cost 500 million. I don't know. It probably wouldn't cost that much. Um, might cost 100 million. I don't know. Might even, it, might, it might surprise me and only cost five. I don't know, but um, it's there. And it really bothers me that that's um, paywalled so heavily uh, that, and I've, yeah, because I've tried to access that. I, I'm very into mapping and I'm all over it. But it drives me crazy. Yeah. Well, I like what you were saying a little earlier too about the developing a competency with the analog or the old original ways of doing things because this technology, like you mentioned, is not really doing a whole lot of new jobs or accomplishing new work. It's assembling components and leveraging energy to do the exact same thing that we've been doing forever for the most part. Um, and actually, this is a kind of a conclusion that I came to when I was working in construction more is that as you start to get these bigger machines to do simple jobs, if you don't have a background and a competency in doing them the simple way or the analog way, it's very easy to misapply them or go wrong very quickly because you're leveraging the energy of goodness knows how many people or animals as it would have been before. And when it goes wrong, it goes wrong fast and it goes wrong in a, in a often irreparable way. And that seems definitely to be the case with massive tillage machinery, right? Because if you had to bring the whole town together to run a couple of sticks through the ground, you'd think about it really carefully and not misapply extra energy where it wasn't needed. Whereas it's so relatively cheap and the costs are so externalized that people are making massive changes and doing huge amounts of work without really needing to put in the thought or the planning or the consideration that's necessary to wield that kind of power. And that's kind of the thing that I worry about with new technology and amplifying all the things that a single person is capable of doing, especially at relatively cheap costs, is we're, we're making massive mistakes very quickly with uh, seemingly little consequences in the short term that, that don't incentivize us to think about it and plan it better. Yeah, I think earth moving equipment's probably the worst. Mm -hmm. And that was one of my, I suppose, one of the strongest parting salvos I had when I kind of left permaculture was that so many people in that, so many of the front men mainly um, in that movement was so uh, embold emboldening so many people to use uh, big yellow machines to, to get out and about. And there's nothing as fast as a bulldozer or an ex a big excavator at moving earth. It is before you, you know, it is, I mean, I say to people when, you know, when they crap on about these things, I say, you go out there with a pick and shovel and dig a cubic meter and see how long it takes you. Right. And I used to say that when we make a, when we make perma uh, on permaculture courses, make a, a Berkeley compost, which is around about a cubic meter of material. And so, Right. Do you know how much a bulldozer moves, an average D7 moves in a day? A thousand of those in a day, right? And it took you about an hour to do that. And that's compost. It's not even heavy. It's not soil, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's light and sloppy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, but, but understand, of course, that, um, and you see that when you look at, 
the I would say the greatest earth and the and perhaps the most stable earthworks of the world. Um, you know the great terrace systems that people have built and so on. They haven't been built um, in five minutes, right? Um, and they've been main, they've had to be maintained by people, not by machines. So um, it's a uh, it it does give you great pause. And the other part to what is to what you were saying is when you scale up on, um, you know, people get excited about having uh, new direct seeding equipment, which is even wider than before. Right? Well, it means that the, the corollary of that, and that's what we see threatening Europe and has threatened the landscapes of Europe in particular, um, is the removal of hedgerows and fields getting bigger and, and, you know, everything, just the scale, everything um, increases and roads get damaged because you've got bigger, heavier trucks with the B-doubles carrying grain around and, you know, huge tractors, which you see as a feature all over Europe, carrying silage and carrying grain. And they've got two, you know, you've got a 160-horsepower tractor pulling a trailer, pulling a trailer, and the impact on that on poor old little old Roman roads um, that, you know, that weren't, that are barely macadamiaized. you know, that they, they don't have the, we were dealing with this uh, in the Q&A this morning about, you know, the bearing weight of roads and what that actually takes and the maintenance that's going on because of all of this scale up and all of this, as you say, the externalization of all of this efficiency of stretching the energy is, um, yeah, well, that all comes back to bite us um, in having shitty roads and, you know, and the average person having to pay for that, not uh, anybody yeah. else. So. Yeah. Mm. All right, well, look, let's switch gears before we wrap up and, and talk about something a little more positive. What are you excited about? What are you working on at the moment? Uh, what projects have you got going on in the future? Mm, what am I excited about? Um well, the book is um, getting, the Regrarian's Handbook is getting closer, which is, um, I promised myself years ago that I wouldn't get too excited because when you get excited, it's like getting, you know, when you get a new job, it's like, okay, I've been seduced. It's, you know, you get seduced into this job and you get sort of, and then oh, it doesn't happen. It's like, Ugh. So years ago, I weaned myself off that um, excitement. Well, at least, um exhibiting any anyway um but um yeah it's good to get to the point where um that's getting closer it's a, it's a massive project and um well, at least for us anyway and uh and uh, so we're very excited about that um <clears throat> and and i think for us the next big step of that is because that is uh that that's going to be our next big thing is once we have that then that will well, I think it'll do a few things. One is it'll um, uh, perhaps catapult, catapult, perhaps not the right word, but it may well, um, categorise us into a new um, uh, uh, space as far as our reputation is concerned and our place in the broader ecosystem. Um, that'll be one thing, but more directly in terms of what we can control and our objective with that is we're excited about how we're going to tie our education much more strongly, which 
goes back to what I was talking about before um, and our role um, as content managers and as gatekeepers, deliverers, knowledge brokers, whatever it is, whatever, you know, or all of those things, helping people to, um, whether they're in an advisory capacity or whether they're just trying to, you know, make the best that, that they can with their individual property. But I think particularly with it, with the advisory crowd, um, creating um, a whole set of, um, well, creating, creating the, the, the learning landscape for people to um, to do a much better job um, um, as advisors, um, because I think that that's going to be something that's really important. And everyone I talk to in this movement, who I respect, um, seems to think that that's a highly necessary thing, because um, you know people can only do so much off their own bat. Um, there's still going to be a role for. Um, for pulling this together and, uh, and that's not necessarily going to be through us or by us um, but I think we'll be a, well I'm excited to I suppose um, put the put our influence into that ring um, while still of course paying um, appropriate homage to the ideas and concepts who we're representing largely um, in our framework so i'm excited about that um and well you know it's like little nuggets of things that come along we're very lucky that um that we live in a dynamic and creative space I mean, even just that conversation we had a couple of days ago um where we just riffed for five minutes and you came and we're oh right yeah i'll do that so there's 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 lots of those little incremental gains um like a lot of people are always, and I think more broadly that people are looking for that disruption, right? And um, they're either planning for disruption, or which is okay, because that's something you should you should plan for as best you can, or be a re- or be adaptive enough to 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 be ready for it, because um, sometimes you don't know what's coming. COVID is a classic example, um, and um, but a lot of people are not ready for the nimble shifts that you can make, the little incremental little gains. And we get excited by them all the time because we get we get them all the time because of the dynamics of the way we work. Uh, it's a very much a um, so the KZN sort of is, you know, that constant, the Japanese theory of constant incremental improvement um, with occasional bursts of bigger leaps so we're yeah we're very stoked to have that because that's controllable and it it's it feels like it's um something we can keep a handle on so i continue to be invigorated by those little things that come along thanks oliver (laughs) (laughs) brilliant well i mean it's it's only a fraction of what i've gotten out of this course so far and being able to not only take my own new project through a lot of the processes that you've outlined in the recs but also coach some of our farmers from around Europe through it at the same time has taught me so much in a short time. And through this interview, it's really cool to get an insight into kind of the philosophy and the thinking that goes behind it, which often doesn't come out in the webinars, which are very focused on particular topics. So this is really rewarding for me too. Cool. 
That's All right, great. man. Well, you have a good rest of your evening. It was really nice to catch up. Same, mate. Thank you. Thanks for accommodating me. Thanks once again to Darren Doherty. I'll be posting all the links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find the previous interviews that I've done with him and all of the episodes from the previous five seasons for free. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. Now, though I'm publishing some pictures and videos of my own design and implementation process of moving into my new property on social media, there's also a lot more personal content that I'm only posting on the Discord as the planning and the preparations unfold. So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. In the next episode of this series on regenerative design, I'll be speaking with Neil Spackman, the co-founder of Regenerative Resources, a company aiming to transform the health and fertility of the world's most degraded coastal landscapes through mangrove agroforestry and saline aquaculture. So be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you stream your podcast from. Now that's our show for this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.